welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. So good to be with you today. Uh, for us, it's one day after the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost. And I know, Francis, you're excited to take up this conversation about uh, the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the role of the Blessed Mother. Since we are in the month of May, we want to discuss how Mary leads us to the Holy Spirit. And as she is the spouse of the Holy Spirit, and, you know, uh, a married couple is one, <laughs> isn't this great that we're going to be talking about them together um, uh, in reference to Pentecost? Well, and that's what we thought was important, as Francis and I, uh, as we so often do, we discuss what programming would be appropriate based on where we are in the church calendar and other events that may be going on. Um, I will say we did think about doing a program on St. Simon Stock. Yes, uh, it's feast is day today. It's feast day, that's right. Uh, May the 16th, uh, St. Simon Stock, who had a, a pivotal role to play in the founding of our order, uh, that per- perpetuation of the Carmelite order in Europe, um, and, and frankly, also moving us into the university environment in Europe at that time. Uh, but he had another role to play, Francis. You want to share with us quickly? <laughs> Well, I don't, I'm not sure what you were going to go to, but I'm oh. thinking about my mother's birthday. <laughs> oh, no, no. I meant his role in terms of uh, the Blessed oh. Mother giving us Oh, the... yes. he's He is the one that it is said received the vision of the Blessed Mother who gave him the brown scapula for our order. Now, of course, there are no records of that, but can you can imagine why, Mark? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Crusades, uh, all the uh, cultural heritage and historical records were being destroyed. So, but you know, I was as I was telling you earlier, I I do believe in that um, apparition, uh, that vision to Saint Simon Stock because, um, you know, just coming up with that idea on his own, and then you know, the big thing is that the graces that are involved with wearing the brown scapular, and there's so many stories, even involving Saint John of the Cross and being uh, pulled out of a well. Mm. Um, all these related to the brown scapular are just so beautiful. It's just a confirmation of of the Blessed Mother's being involved in all of this. Well, that was uh, going to be my point as well. The Blessed Mother herself has, in later apparitions, reaffirmed the devotion to the scapula, uh, and that through the scapula, of course, she would distribute graces. So uh, we accept that in faith, and we proudly wear our scapulas, and we move on. Now, you had one other thing yes. you wanted to mention <laughs> well, before we pray. Being the Feast of St. Simon Stock, I, I, I also remember my mother, because this is her birthday. Happy birthday, Mom! You're 82. I'm so proud of you. And what a grace, because it is, um, you know, she being born on that day, and here I am in Carmel, and I just felt like that seed was planted in my mom, and, and is blossoming in me, and I thank you, God, for all of that, and I thank you, God, for my mother. <laughs> well, as long as you're giving thanks, I'm going to ask if you, what as you do each week, would you lead us in prayer as we begin this conversation today? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Of course, anybody familiar with the rosary would know that that prayer is often associated with the rosary. It's at the end of the rosary. So, or the uh, Hail Holy Queen. Or the Hail Holy um, Queen. Right. That's I've right. seen. I've heard both. But both. It's a right. beautiful prayer. So let's do it. Remember and yes. remember the Virgin Mary. Well, we're going to turn to another saint uh, aside from Saint Simon Stock, who obviously had a, a number of intimate encounters with the Blessed Mother. Two distinct visions are attributed. Uh, in his lifetime, but this is uh, St. Louis de Montfort, who many people know as one of the greatest proponents of devotion to the Blessed Mother. Uh, And this 18th century French priest is known to have uh, said that on her deathbed, an assumption into heaven, quoting him now, God chose Mary to be the treasurer, the administrator, and the dispenser of all his graces, so that all his graces and gifts would pass through her hands. So she seems to be somebody we would want to spend a lot of time with, Francis. Absolutely. We're, and I, you we're know, looking to secure those graces. And I've often heard her referred to as the neck of the body of Christ. You know, but mm-hmm. Christ is the head, we are the body. She's the neck through which all of it passes. <laughs> it reminds me of the old line from my uh, uh, Greek fat, my, my famous Greek fat wedding or whatever that was, you know, that <laughs> that old film. My wife's going to criticize me for not having remembered it. My great fat Greek wedding or something like that where the mother says that the husband is the head, but she's the neck and the neck gets to determine where the head turns. So, <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That was an interesting line. I've just given all those women and mothers out there great ammunition. (laughs) With that being said, it seems that we can find no better intercessor than for our desire to receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this time where we've just celebrated Pentecost than the Blessed Mother herself. And of course, I I have to say, don't think that just because Pentecost has passed that we're done receiving the Holy Spirit. This is a moment-to-moment job. We should always be open and docile to the Holy Spirit. We should be begging the Father and our Lord to give us the Holy Spirit and give us this continuous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And of course, our Blessed Mother being the means of the dispensing of that grace. And as you mentioned, spouse of the Holy Spirit is a great source for us. And the the Church Fathers validate this as well. Many uh, uh, of them speak and write about her. Mary's role, in fact, in assisting in our salvation has been praised by many of the saints. Um, through the centuries. St. Lawrence Justinian, as a matter of fact, referred to the Blessed Mother as the ladder of paradise, the gate of heaven, the truest mediatrix between God and man. That image of the ladder, of course, very powerful. We know uh, St. John Climacus saw that image of the ladder with the angels ascending and descending and uh, carrying the souls with them. And uh, here, St. Justinian is telling us Mary herself, in fact, is that ladder. But, but why is it true that the Blessed Mother has such a significant role in the work of our salvation, the work of the dispensing of graces, uh, um, and the intimacy that we are to acquire with the Holy Spirit? And, and also, what is it about her that places her in such high dignity and at such high regard in the spiritual realm? Well, we could argue that it was simply that God chose her and deemed that it would be so. And we would be partially correct in that regard, of course. Truly, Mary was full of grace. As we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, which means she is without original sin. She is immaculate. And I'm thinking of the, you know, the apparition at at Lourdes. I am the immaculate conception. She is the very condition or, or this immaculateness is what we are all aspiring to be. You know, that's the condition we have to be in in order to enter heaven because no sin, no nothing dirty enters heaven, right? So uh, we, we want the Blessed Mother to help us to enter heaven, to be with her. But 
it's more than the fact that she was without sin, full of grace. It's, yeah, let me stay on that argument of grace for just one second. Okay. This is a bit of a reading I did, Francis, in fairness, just before the show. But um, it was in an article that was released uh, just yesterday by Stephen Beale. We want to give Stephen Beale credit for this. Mary, indispensable to the gospel, where uh, Stephen talks about uh, the Greek word for grace is charis, first appears, by the way, in Luke 130, where Mary is told that she has found grace with God. Uh, in fact, this is also the only place in the Gospels that this word grace is used in a verb form. Um, that uh, is also true in Luke 128, where Mary is told that she has been filled with grace. Grace thus appears as a dynamic force, something active, totally transformative, the, the reference Francis just gave us, transformative of the human person who receives it. It bursts forth onto the scene, so to speak. And then in Ephesians 1, 6, uh, later, Paul will tell us just how um, meaningful this gift of grace is when he says, and he's referring to God now, our Father, he destined us in love to be sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It is grace that not only saves us, but also transforms us. And so this activity, looking strictly at it in terms of a biblical context, uh, we should know, began on this earth with Mary. Grace, so to speak, germinated in Mary. Of course, we know the, uh, that our Lord did, in fact, uh, begin his life in the womb, his earthly life in the womb of our Blessed Mother. And so this importance of her uh, distributing grace, but also being the source and, in fact, full of grace herself. Well, we want to go on beyond the fact that she was without sin, that she was full of grace. You know, it's also the fact that Mary, despite her elevated condition, and indeed because of it, she practiced the single most important virtue of humility. And she did so to the highest degree possible. And I think in order for us to understand this power of the virtue of humility and why it is that this virtue is one of the central reasons for Mary's powerful role as an intermediary between God and man, we must first gain an understanding of this virtue. So I'm going to let the theologian take over well, now. <laughs> I, I, I want to do that, but before you do, I'm going to turn back to the, uh, to the source of um, teaching in Carmel, uh, you made reference earlier to um, uh, Teresa of Avila's emphasis on the virtue of humility. We're going to really bring this out, not only in the context of what it means for us as as a virtue that must be practiced, but then we'll we'll demonstrate it in the life of the Blessed Mother how it brings power. But let's remind ourselves what our own Teresa of Avila has to say about this virtue of humility. All right, this is her famous quote about humility: "Humility, however deep it be." neither disquiets or troubles nor disturbs the soul, it is accompanied by peace, joy, and tranquility. Far from disturbing or depressing the soul, it enlarges it and makes it fit to serve God. And here's, that was the second most important one, the most important <laughs> one here. I'm sorry, I started reading the wrong one. Um, here is her most uh, often repeated definition about humility. This is St. Teresa of Avila saying, once I was considering why our Lord attached so much importance to humility. Without seeking it, the answer suddenly enlightened my mind. Because God is the absolute truth. 
and humility is to walk in truth. It is a fact that nothing good comes from us, only misery and nothingness. Whoever does not understand this walks in lies. The one who understands this best walks in truth and pleases God, who is all truth. So here, uh, what we see is that there is a uh, a double foundation of humility, and, and the foundation would be truth and justice. Truth that helps us see ourselves as who we are, and who God is, and who He is, and who we are in relationship to Him, and justice, which leads us to act according to that perception. So, uh, we'll begin with the um, sort of a theological explanation of the virtue of humility, but after that we're going to look at humility as expressed in the words and played out in the actions, the live, uh, the, the actual life uh, on earth of the Blessed Mother. And lastly, since we are Carmelites, we're going to want to look at what the Catechism has to say about how humility is a fundamental prerequisite to effective contemplative prayer. Let's go to the Catholic Encyclopedia first, and here we discover that the virtue of humility is defined as a quality by which a person, considering his or her own defects, has a lowly opinion of themselves and willingly submits themselves to God and to others. For God's sake. St. Bernard defines it as a virtue by which a person, knowing themselves as they truly are, abases themselves. These definitions coincide with what St. Thomas Aquinas says. The virtue of humility consists in keeping oneself within one's own bounds, not reaching out to things above, but submitting to one's superior. This, of course, is uh, absolutely reflected in the life of the Blessed Mother. We'll see that both in her own words and actions in just a moment. But, but finishing the theological reflection, humility in a higher sort of ethical sense is that virtue by which a man, woman, has a modest estimate of their own worth and submits themselves to others. According to this meaning, no person can humiliate another, only themselves. And this can be, uh, he, he or she can do properly only when aided by divine grace. We are treating here humility in the sense that it is a virtue. Humility is a virtue. And it's an interesting, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it is true that no other person can humiliate us, Francis. Humiliation stems from within. It is a recognition of our failure, our sinfulness, and with a good conscience, we can uh, hopefully achieve humiliation. But no other person can demean us th through words, actions, even degrading behavior, unless we allow that to happen to ourselves internally. It's very important. Christ before the high priest, when he was slapped and was, was verbally assaulted by the guard, was not at that moment in a state of humiliation. There were actions that were humiliating, but Christ was not experiencing humiliation. It's an important distinction that we have to draw. Mm. We must bring out our own humiliation, and it is a healing for us when we do that. Well, I think it's important that we first then look at Mary, our mother, because she's the new Eve in contrast with the first Eve, and then see how it is that they reacted differently in the circumstances they experienced before God. We can remember how Eve, on the one hand, was found to be disobedient, and when yet a virgin in the Garden of Eden, she did not obey God's commands. From Genesis 3.6, we, we read, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat. And she also gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
So it's important here that the scripture verse brings out, um, th- this particular reflection actually brings out, I should also mention, uh, some of this is drawn from an article by Kathleen Beckman, a wonderful article on how the Blessed Mother brings us to the Holy Spirit and uh, to that intimate relationship uh, with the Holy Spirit, and some of that um, is what we're reflecting on now. The woman, um, Eve, of course, in a virginal state still in the garden, uh, chooses disobedience. Mary, on the other hand, when she is approached by the angel and given um, the revelation, God's word, if you will, is told something that she cannot possibly fathom. But conversely, she responds with simple obedience and submission. And, you know, when you think about um, Eve's no, her disobedience, and the magnitude of that was that original sin and how that has played havoc, that helps put in uh, a good perspective and great context what the immensity of this fiat, this yes of the Blessed Mother is for us. It it literally changed human history, right? Yes. Uh, And thankfully the Blessed Mother responded in the way she did. And what did she say? Well, Mary, according to St. Irenaeus, Mary the Virgin, again, like Eve the Virgin, is found to be obedient, saying, Behold, O Lord, your handmaid, be it done to me according to your word. And this is a great example of this humility because um, she's manifesting the truth about herself, calling herself this handmaid, and then her manifesting her relationship to the Lord by saying, be it done unto me according to thy word. So I'd like us then to focus on these words of Mary, and of course the context of them is the Magnificat. Um, this is not, of course, what she said um, to the angel Gabriel, but what she said to Elizabeth um, when it was determined, when it was understood that she was, in fact, carrying our Lord within her. Uh, she utters her Magnificat. Now, I'm going to ask, Francis, if you wouldn't read the whole thing, and then I want to go through, and, and each of us can sort of reflect on uh, some highlighted sections of the prayer so that we really draw out the richness of Mary's own words. Again, we said we'd move from theological to Mary's own words and then into actions. Uh, but here, let's look at her own words. So as I proclaim this, I would just like ask ask you to please just go interiorly, get recollected, because this is a prayer too, even though we're going to be discussing this prayer. But let us pray it and then discuss it. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. That, that is, in and of itself, a very powerful prayer. Of course, those of us who do the office, the divine office, this would be evening prayer, uh, and it's something we pray every day right. um, and, and should be. But do we really understand the words, and do we sort of take time to unearth the meaning of each of these phrases, and we're going to take a little bit of time to explore some of them. Obviously, you could uh, spend hours uh, in meditation just uh, drawing lessons and and, uh, grace from this prayer. 
But let's begin with the first um, um, stanza here. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Now, we're going to see this word greatness in a little bit in our conversation later. Uh, but just to reflect on it here, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary is acknowledging God's greatness, his power, his uh, authority over not only her, but over all of humanity. Right up front, this reminds me of Catherine of Siena, who used to begin her prayer. Let's get things straight. You're God, I'm not. <laughs> this is This is the Blessed Mother making it clear right up front. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. I acknowledge the greatness of my Father, the greatness of God, and his mighty power. She goes on in the second verse and says, For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. Reflect on that word lowly for a moment, Francis. So she's, he's, she's gone from greatness, the greatness of God, and then identifying herself as the lowly servant. So what's next? <laughs> I got a little interruption there, so I'm a little. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go right. sink here. Sorry. Uh, I, I'm just putting the juxtaposition: the greatness of the Lord, and then she married, identifying herself as His lowly servant. She's right. put in, in the words of uh, Catherine of Siena again. This prayer in context. Let's remember who's who. God right. is the greatness. I am simply His handmaiden, His lowly servant. Right, and I I recall that. Um, in an article that Father John Harden wrote, you know, he says, you know, about this strophe that is about her gratitude, that Mary knew the favor she was blessed. And, um, you know, he goes on and he's telling us a little bit more about some of the other strophes. So I believe we're on the next one about praise of God's power, um, his holiness and mercy, where, where the strophe has the words, the Almighty has done great things for me. Is yes. that where we're at? Yes. <laughs> no. From, from this day, that. she says, the, from this day, all generations will call me blessed. Now, she acknowledges that she will be called blessed, but then when she comes right back with this phrase, the Almighty has done great things for me. She isn't doing this on her own. She isn't um, you know, taking credit, if you will. Again, back to her humility. She says, All, the Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So again, Mary is putting herself in the proper uh, context for this prayer. God's greatness, her lowliness, and though she will be acknowledged throughout generations, uh, it is only because of the great things that God has done for her. Following on to the next trophy, he, she says, He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. Here she's doing two things. One, she's acknowledging that it is the fear of God that draws down his mercy, and we should never shy away from saying that. It is the fear of God. It is the knowledge of God. It is the understanding of God's great power that we saw in the first verse of this prayer. Here she says, In every generation it will be those who fear him to whom he will show his mercy. I'm going to ask you to keep going, Mark, because right. you're doing great. <laughs> Furthermore, he has shown the strength of his arm, again, keeping things in context. But then she comes back with this very direct line. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. Now, this is our Blessed Mother. This is um, a gentleness and purity and graciousness and, and uh, uh, all things we sort of wrap up in our image of motherhood. But she's being very direct here. 
God has scattered the proud in their conceit. It is pride. It is conceit. It is the uh, selfness about us that will lead us to be scattered and confused and, and ultimately lead to our destruction if we aren't able to turn back and, and rely on the Blessed Mother uh, to bring us out of this. Furthermore, she says, he's cast down the mighty from their thrones and instead has lifted up the lowly. Where are we going back to? The very statement she made in the first uh, three lines where she referred to herself as his lowly servant. She says, God has scattered the proud. He's cast down the mighty. He's instead lifted up the lowly. We'll just finish this before the break. In the next phrase, she says, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Who is she referring to here, though, with the hungry? Because we do still have hunger in our world. We know that. And those, uh, many of those still turn to God. She's referring, of course, to a reference in Matthew 5, 6, the Beatitudes. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, these are the ones that our Heavenly Father will fill. And lastly, in the last verse, he has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers. Now we're going to go through each of the major um, categories, four, in fact, of this prayer. As soon as we come back from the break, a reminder that you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. We're picking up on a conversation Francis and I are having about the role of the Blessed Mother in helping us to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're, of course, uh, just a day away from having celebrated Pentecost while we're having this conversation. And we've just gone through Mary's uh, famous prayer, the Magnificat, to understand and unearth a little bit each of the phrases, and I encourage our listeners to do that. When you pray the Divine Office, of course, don't just say the Divine Office, but really take time to um, delve into the Psalms and delve into the prayers um, uh, of Mary and and uh, all, all of the readings, of course, that are presented to us and, and really draw meat from that. Mark, you picked up on something that is a, a little pet peeve of mine. You know, we don't say our prayers. We we should pray right. our prayers. So thank you for pointing that out. Pray yeah. it. Yeah, and so many people say, well, I don't do the... I said this myself, so I plead guilty. Years ago, I said, you know, I don't do the office because I just don't get that much out of it. It's just recitation. I've, you know, memorized much of it. We do as we do it year after year after year. And a priest told me one time, he said, well, that's because you're not doing it for you. <laughs> you're doing it for the Lord, but but we need to take time to really delve into the words and pray them slowly, try to draw out the deeper meaning. Well, this is actually what Father Hardin uh, did with regard to the Magnificat. Yeah, Um, I jumped again on that earlier. I had a distraction there, and when I came back, I wasn't quite sure. um, Was that your mom on the phone, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So um, anyway, from this article, Father John Hardin, who I believe is up for, um, I think they are trying to promote him to become a blessed. Oh, great. So, Certainly worthy of that. Anyway, he he says, All the great biblical masters of the ages has affirmed that there are four parts to the Magnificat. In the first strophe, Mary expresses her gratitude to God. In the second, she praises God for his power, his holiness, and his mercy. In the third, she compares how differently God deals with the proud and the humble. And in the fourth and final strophe, she recalls that all the ancient prophecies, which were the promises to the Jews, are now being fulfilled in the Messiah, who was at that moment present in her womb. (laughs) Think of that. (laughs) Yeah, so let's begin with this idea of gratitude. Um, We talked about it uh, briefly when we reflected back on the prayer itself in the first uh, couple of lines, the first um, couple of verses. 
Um, but Francis, tell us what Father Harden has to say about this idea of gratitude, which, by the way, we should, we should emphasize this. This is a very good model for prayer. Think about this. This is the Blessed Mother now teaching us to pray. And as we go through these, I'm just going to quickly remind everybody what Francis just said. The first entry point into prayer is gratitude, acknowledging God uh, and, and, and our appreciation for uh, the very fact that he's giving us time, he's listening to us. Secondly, is his power, his holiness, and his mercy in acknowledging that. Third, the recognition of the different ways in which our Father deals with the proud and the humble. The whole theme of this conversation is Mary's humility as an entry point into um, our intimate union with the Holy Spirit. And finally, the fulfillment of the promises. But let's look first at gratitude. All right, so remember, this is where she says, uh, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And at the end, she says, he's looked with favor on his lowly servant. So that's the context. Mary knew by whose favor she was blessed. And that's how we need to operate as well. (laughs) We need to know who it is that is responsible for, for the blessings that we receive. And compare these two phrases lowliness of his handmaid or the lowly and he that is mighty has done great things for me god did do great things for mary because in her own estimation she was his lowly servant this is all god asked us to tell him and this is what we should say you alone are mighty and i except for you am nothing And the moment my conscience tells me you have spoken, I don't for a second wish to hesitate doing what you ask. Now, that's what Father Hardin had. That's the way he would have prayed that. The only reason why Mary became under God, the mother of God, is because she was so profoundly aware of being the servant of the Lord. That's his opinion. And so that's how we end that first strophe of the Magnificat. Yeah, and again, just to go back and emphasize this idea, we said, what is it that makes Mary so powerful in the spiritual realm? And we might think, well, it's the gift that God gave her. It's the authority that he gave her. It's the fact that she's the dispenser of graces, and therefore she can wield all this power, right? Not at all. What bests the devil? It's the very lowliness and humility Mm -hmm. of our Blessed Mother that allows her to overcome him at every encounter. Well, the second area that Father Harden wants us to focus on is praise of God's power, his holiness and his mercy. The one I adore is the only one I fear. We talked about fear of the Lord, and that is God Almighty. As long as he's with me, who can do me any harm? He will be with me as long as I am with him. We have infinity at our disposal, provided we have the humility and the honesty to acknowledge that God alone has the right to tell us what to do. No wonder the saints were so powerful when they had the almighty power at their disposal. How is God's holiness manifested? How is he holy? Well, he's holy because he's holy other. He alone must be. He alone cannot be anything other than he is. Everything else, including ourselves, need not be, but God must be. What do we mean by growing in holiness? We mean that we are to grow more and more like God. In his singularity, he is holy. What in the last analysis makes God holy? He's utterly unworldly. He does not need the world, even though there would be no world without him. Let us ask our Lord to enlighten us on this, as it, uh, and most especially what it means to be unworldly. How is God mercy? Well, God is merciful, for he loves the sinner, even though he hates the sin at the same time. His mercy is boundless. His kindness towards the weak and fallen is proverbial, meaning without end. Uh, Let us remember that though we have sinned deeply and often, God still loves us. His love is greater than our sin. 
He wants us to become holy, more holy, because we've sinned. He wants us to become more and more humble, more patient, more prayerful than we would have been had we not sinned. And what a great grace that in and of itself is, Francis, to know, as we've read in Blessed Miriam um, uh, of Jesus Crucified, the story about uh, her witnessing that the greatest souls in heaven were those who took uh, the manure of their sins and used it to create their own holiness. What a wonderful uh, sort of image and, for us. And by the way, tomorrow is the year anniversary <laughs> since they canonized her a saint um, in our Carmel Good day to pray to her. Yeah. So this next section um, is the proud versus the humble. Remember that scattered the proud in their conceit, cast down the mighty, lifted up the lowly. Okay, this is what Father um, Hardin tells us. God exalts the humble, and he humbles the proud. We are inclined to take this too mechanically and mistakenly suppose that this reward of the humble and retribution of the proud always takes place regularly in our lives. Difference. I wish it did. <laughs> Same sentiments, Father. <laughs> Sadly, but obviously, the proud get prouder and are exalted. Who makes the headlines? Who are honored and praised? Who are ignored in the world as the little ones, the anawim? <laughs> but no matter, the span of human life on earth, even the longest life, is short when we compare it to eternity. That is why my faith in heaven and hell is strengthened when I read the Magnificat, and I am assured of what God eventually does. He goes on to say, heaven is the glorification of humility. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Heaven is the glorification of humility, and hell is the humiliation of pride. What a statement. Mm. Thank God that heaven and hell are both real. That's what Father Hardin tells us. I I really like that. very important to think about that. You know, the saints tell us, in your moments of exuberance and when you begin to feel like, uh, you know, everything's going, uh, as my dad used to say, (laughs) hunky-dory, Uh, be careful. Think about hell. Remind yourself about hell, and it'll reaffirm your commitment to your devotions. Conversely, in states of despair and depression, and when you become despondent, remind yourself that there's a heaven. Remind yourself that eternity is where we will spend our time in God's presence. And if we're keeping our eyes on Christ, Christ is in heaven. So <laughs> that's where our eyes <laughs> should be and our goals should be, to be with him in heaven. Well, and in order to do that, in order to focus on Christ in heaven, we have to be able to rely on God's promises, which is the fourth section of the Magnificat. God keeps his promises. His faithfulness in the face of the disloyalty of the Jewish people over the centuries before Christ uh, was hardly even conceived, uh, we read in the Old Testament. It tells of one dreary failure after another, their failure to live up to the covenant that Yahweh had made with them. I remember years ago taking a course in Old Testament uh, theology, and the professor just kept reiterating, failure, Reestablishment, my God, failure. Reestablishment, we always get it wrong. <laughs> oh, by the way, this is human. Uh, this is the human experience for all of us. And if we doubt that, uh, all we have to do is uh, read in Scripture where uh, we are uh, all um, fallen short of the grace of God, and we are all sinners. And so, um, the Jewish experience is simply the human experience on a very individual level. Right. Another uh, failure to live up to the covenant continuously. They constantly relapsed into idolatry. They resisted God's commands. <clears throat> Yet after each infidelity, murder their prophets, ignoring Yahweh's laws, resisting his will, there was nevertheless a covenant between Yahweh and his people, as there is between us through our Lord Jesus Christ and through grace, which we've read about. They had failed immeasurably and sadly, but as Mary says, God does not fail. 
How well have we, with whom God has entered into this new covenant, kept our part of the covenant? Our Sinai is the Sermon on the Mount. We know this. We understand the analogy. The law uh, from the Sermon on the Mount is the law of love and the Beatitudes. And our Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is, of course, the Beatitudes themselves. Read them and weep, Father Hardin says. Read them and weep. That's Matthew chapter 5. God, however, does not fail us even when we fail him. How we need this reassurance that in spite of our infidelities, God will not abandon us. We are not loved by God because we are good. We are loved by God because God is good. We must remain serene and calm and never allow ourselves to become discouraged. God, our God, is a faithful God. If we believe that the Blessed Mother is our model in humility and that she will lead us to an encounter with the Holy Spirit, we must now then look at how she plays this out, how the Catechism guides and directs us to use humility as the preeminent prerequisite for effective contemplative prayer. And that's where we're going to go next. Francis, would you mind picking up that? Sure thing. In section 2546, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes reveal an order of happiness and grace, of beauty and peace. Jesus celebrates the joy of the poor to whom the kingdom already belongs. The word speaks of voluntary humility as poverty in spirit. The apostle gives an example of God's poverty when he says, For your sakes he became poor. Yes, the catechism takes us right back again to... Uh, the Beatitudes, of course, they mention the Beatitudes. But poverty in spirit, so many people misunderstand. We think it is poverty manifested in poor circumstances, insufficient food, clothing, housing, what have you. It's not. It's this lowliness that we go right back to the Magnificat and find the Blessed Mother attributing to herself. It is her humility. In that poverty of spirit, we find strength. And the Catechism reminds us, again, as a prerequisite for prayer, Effective prayer, we must find poverty in spirit. In the Catechism 2631, the first movement of prayer, it says, of petition, is simply asking forgiveness. Like the tax collector in the parable, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is a prerequisite for righteousness and pure prayer. A trusting humility brings us back into the light of communication between the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another so that we receive from him whatever we ask. Asking forgiveness is the prerequisite for both the Eucharistic liturgy and for personal prayer. All of what I just read is from directly from the Catechism. Obviously, you recognize, a listener, the biblical references here, but I want to just go back to this most important uh, statement from the Catechism. It is a prerequisite for righteous and pure prayer. This idea of humility and of asking forgiveness and accepting our lowliness. And continuing the connection with prayer and humility, this is in section 2559. Prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God or the requesting of good things from God. But when we pray, do we speak from the height of our pride and will or out of the depths of a humble and contrite heart? He who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is the foundation of prayer. Only when we humbly acknowledge that we do not know how to pray as we ought are we ready to receive freely the gift of prayer. Man is a beggar before God. You know, this reminds me of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection who referred to himself in prayer in just that way. He said, we need to go before the Father 
with a beggar's clothing on, you know, and we need to acknowledge that we are the ones asking. We are the ones in need. He is the one who holds all the source in the store. Um, and, and though he freely distributes those gifts of grace and mercy and blessing, he acknowledges that we are in need and we must acknowledge it. And as you said, uh, reading from the Catechism, we don't approach God with pride and a self-will, but out of the depths of our humility and a contrite heart. So with humility as the foundation of prayer, let's take it up a notch to contemplative prayer. In section 2000... Well, actually, I think we had one more. Didn't we have one more we wanted to cover? No, I just did that one. 2713? Yeah. Um, oh, I yeah, just said. Yeah, 2713. That's okay. where I was going. Okay. Yeah. All right. Contemplative prayer is the simplest expression of the mystery of prayer. It's a gift, a grace. It can be accepted only in humility and poverty. Contemplative prayer is a covenant relationship established by God within our hearts. Contemplative prayer is a communion in which the Holy Trinity conforms man, the image of God, to his likeness. Well, again, contemplative prayer, the highest form of prayer for us, is where the Lord has really taken over, um, where we have disposed ourselves. And certainly, we have to utter vocal prayer in some of the preparatory uh, disposition that we've talked about, acknowledging our loneliness. We do that with our voice, acknowledging our need for God, acknowledging that we are um, uh, the beggar as we stand before God, expressing our um, sometimes remorse for the times that we've offended God. These are either expressed ver uh, ver verbally, vocally, in vocal prayer, uh, maybe even praying the Magnificat, or they could be meditated on. But ultimately, we want to move to this mystery, the simple expression of contemplative prayer, which we know, as Francis read, is a gift. It in and of itself is a grace, but it can only be uh, entered into through the process of humility and poverty, the entering in of humility and poverty. So to sum up our understanding of Mary as both the model of humility and the one who will ultimately intercede for us to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we want to offer some simple lessons from an article that, um, Mark, I believe you found this, from Kathleen, Kathleen Beckman right. on how we might adopt Mary's model to help prepare ourselves for this outpouring of the Spirit, which continues. It's not just Pentecost alone. But I, I want to point out something that one of our um, members at our community meeting yesterday pointed out. She said, you know, Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit at the Incarnation. So at Pentecost, she already experienced what it was like to receive the Holy Spirit. So who better than her to help prepare the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit? Now remember, too, um, when, when Jesus breathed on them and said to the disciples, to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, you know, and he was saying, whose sins you hold bound shall be held bound. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm like, well, I thought he's already given them the Holy Spirit there. So what's the difference between that and Pentecost? So I had a discussion with some people about this, and he said one was a private bestowing of the Holy Spirit on them, and the other was the public manifestation of it, which the, I the birth was, of the church, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah exactly amazing. right. Yeah. Well, Pius XII, um, just quickly, we want to uh, draw a, a wonderful a quote from him, which reads like this. She who at the start of the, referring to Mary, of course, she who at the start of the redemption gave us her son, now by her most powerful intercession obtained for the newborn church, the prodigious Pentecostal outpouring of the spirit of the divine redeemer who had already been given 
on the cross, somewhat what you were just saying, Francis, that um, at Pentecost, it is the birth of the Church, and Mary, of course, present uh, to um, make sure uh, that this outpouring of the Spirit is made available to us. And so if we want to go back uh, to, as Francis has reminded us twice now, this continual receipt of the gifts of the Spirit, of the outpouring of the Spirit, of the guide, counsel, wisdom, knowledge, understanding that the Spirit has to give us. Mary is the greatest source of our doing that. All right, so that leads us into these simple Marian lessons for Pentecost that Kathleen Beckman provided so wonderfully for us, for us to share. Um, the first one is from Luke one thirty-eight. I am the handmaid of the Lord. And she says, Invoke the Holy Spirit to possess you more fully with his love and receive him anew with docility and joy. And also continuing on that um, uh, same verse, Be it done unto me according to your word. She says, Desire to receive, respond, and retain an active love relationship with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Father himself recently said in a homily, the Holy Spirit is the lost member of the Trinity, right? The one that we don't seem to hear enough about and know enough about. Um, and the Holy Father encouraged us to continue to desire and respond and retain this active engagement, active relationship with the Holy Spirit. Then we go to Luke one forty-seven. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Here she suggests, Humbly pray for the Spirit's fire to set your heart ablaze and welcome the gifts and fruits of the Spirit. And in, uh, of course, we're, we're reading from Luke 1. We'll get to John in just a moment. But this is largely in uh, the first chapter of Luke, the latter uh, verses. And Which so, makes up the Magnificat. <laughs> yes, exactly. So from Luke one forty six, she says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Uh, Kathleen Beckman's uh, encouragement is for us to acknowledge before God and man that whatever is good in us, in our life, is a gratuitous work of the Holy Spirit. I heard this in a homily this morning at Mass, in fact, mm -hmm. that anything that is good in us, we have to acknowledge, is a gratuitous work of the Holy Spirit. The question is, to what extent will we allow the Holy Spirit to continue that work? That's our challenge. Yeah, and when we see that good work, that's when we know we're in line with the, being in the image and likeness of the Lord. <laughs> All right, then we go on to Luke 1, verse 53. He's lifted up the humble. She suggests stay in the middle of the collaborative action of Mary and the Holy Spirit so that you remain in the love that protects, sanctifies, equips you, and empowers your mission. Boy, our confirmandee need that. <laughs> this is All really the centerpiece of what, of what we've been discussing, has lifted up the humble. Uh, Mary putting herself in that lowly state and acknowledging her um, servant nature before God is what... Uh, as we've said a couple of times now, elevated her uh, to such spiritual power in the realm. Finally, Luke 148, repeating his mercy endures forever. Contemplate the upper room in Christ's three interrelated initiatives for love and life. They are the Eucharist, the priesthood, and Pentecost. I don't know that we could uh, find better references for securing and continuing to uh, develop our spiritual gifts, the gifts that come from the Holy Spirit, then frequent reception of the Eucharist, participation, of course, with uh, the priestly um, uh, uh, gifts of the Sacrament of Pen uh, Reconciliation, um, and, and, of course, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. And lastly, from John 2, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. With expectant faith daily, invoke the Holy Spirit as your soul's best friend, seeking loving companionship, counsel, courage, 
and direction. I really liked how she took the Magnificat in that last line, these, that last line with the words of the last words of Mary written yes, in exactly. the scripture. I really liked how she took those in and gave us some action to do with them. And, you know, as we speak, we were speaking all this time about, you know, Mary's humility and this foundation uh, of humility as the power of her intercession. And I ran across an article by Father uh, Reginald Garigou Lagrange on Mary's power of intercession. And he pointed out three other things. I just want to say them real quick because we're almost out of time. Um, but number, he says the three fundamental reasons for Mary's power of intercession. Now, you know, this, this is separate from what we've just been discussing. But number one, she's the mother of all of us. All right. And uh, number two, Mary is the most powerful intercessor of all the saints because she is the nearest to Christ. <laughs> There's no one closer, more intimate to Christ than her. And um, the final one, she's the mediatrix. Um, and it goes back to that being the neck of the body of Christ. Or as as he also pointed out, she's the aqueduct that uh, it has the graces flow to humanity from from God to us. Well, and she has great power with her son, obviously, to intercede as we express our needs and desires to her. Uh, we can rest assured that she always carries those to her son. Uh, I do want to just remind our listeners about an upcoming pilgrimage in the latter part of September. September 29th, we'll be leaving uh, for a wonderful week in Quebec, the province of Quebec. We'll be beginning our trip in Montreal and uh, see a number of sites there, including Notre Dame and the Oratory, which is the um, great cathedral dedicated to St. Joseph. And then moving on from there, we'll go to Quebec City and see another Notre Dame, uh, the shrine to St. Therese of Lisieux in Canada, and also St. Anne de Beaupre. So if you can join us, we'd love to have you. Just go on to our webpage, carmeliteconversations.com, and you'll see at the top of the page there a link to the a pilgrimage a company that will be uh, running the, um, the the actual pilgrimage. I'll be on it, and uh, we'll be looking forward to having an opportunity to meet with you, pray with you, and visit some of these wonderful destinations. Well, that gets us to our closing minute. <laughs> we have a beautiful scriptural prayer for Pentecost that Kathleen Beckman gave us. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ said, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. Spirit of truth, guide me always, I pray. Christ said, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Holy Spirit, help me to glorify the Father and declare with my life that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ said, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Divine Counselor, Please enlighten my mind to the teachings of Christ and help me to recall his words that are spirit and truth. Holy Spirit, please come anew. Fill me with your love, life, joy, peace, and wisdom as I pray for my personal Pentecost through the intercession of your beloved spouse, the Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I remind you, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria Christian Voice in your home. We'll be with you next week for another program on Mary as we work through her month, the month of May. Until then, God bless.